Well, this morning I want us to think about that phrase, who knows? It's in that passage there in verse 9. And um, Wikipedia, a dictionary, the font of all things knowledgeable, uh, tells me that who knows is a, a phrase that can have two meanings. One, it can be a, re- a rhetorical question that is asked by someone to show that you actually have no clue um, about the answer or who might know the answer. So, for example, family here uh, and friends for the baptism of Isabel, you might say, who knows if Isabel is ever going to be obedient to her parents? But who knows can also be a rhetorical question asked to express the idea that anything is possible or that anything could happen. So you might ask a question like this. Who knows? Isabel might one day grow up to be obedient to her parents. Can you hear the difference? So this phrase, who knows, occurs numerous times in the Bible. Sometimes it is an expression of frustration or despair. So, for example, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes who says, who knows? Who knows if the person who inherits the results of your hard work on earth will be a wise person or an idiot. But sometimes the Bible uses it in a way that is an expression of hope. So uh, uh, the, the person doesn't know how God is going to act, but she takes a punt and is hopeful and puts her trust in God. And so, for example, King David was uh, doing this when he prayed for his newborn child that was sick And uh, he says, who knows, maybe God will be gracious to my child and save it. Or Mordecai in the book of Esther, the Jews were under threat and Mordecai approaches Queen Esther. Do you remember what he says? Who knows, maybe you have become queen for such a time as this. And this is how the king of Nineveh uses it in the phrase in verse 9. Can you see it there in your passage there? He says to his fellow Ninevites, who knows God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king of Nineveh does not know how God is going to act and so he takes a desperate, hopeful punt. Who knows? Who knows? There's a vague chance that God may not punish us as we deserve. Who knows? He may not punish us as he has promised to do. Who knows? He may change his mind and turn from his anger and spare us. This phrase, who knows, is an important question in the book of Jonah and it comes at a critical point in the story. So in order to come to grips with it, let's uh, turn back to the start of this chapter and get some perspective. The first thing that we are told is that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And this is the second time that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. When it came to him the first time, do you remember what he did? He got up and he ran away completely in the opposite direction as far as he could go to Tarshish. But God pursued him in a storm and kindly arranged for him to be swallowed by a large fish and rescued him. But this second time, 
Jonah obeys. He gets up and he goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord and he prepares to go to this great city and call out God's message against it. What do we know about this city of Nineveh? Um, the book of Jonah tells us something about it and other parts of the Bible do as well. And Pete's already told us, hasn't he? And you can see that picture in the front cover or the inside cover of your booklet that it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It was a city of idol worship. It was a city known for its wickedness and violence. It was a city that every brick uh, that was built was built on the spoils of war. But this passage tells us that it was a large city. Uh, in chapter 411, we'll actually learn how many people are in it. 120,000 people lived there. And verse 3 in our passage tells us that it was a large city. A visit, it says, took three days. That probably means that it took three days to go around all the important places and observe all the ancient protocols. But verse 3 also says something interesting. It says that it was a very important city. Now, a little literal translation of that is a great city to God. In other words, what matters about Nineveh is not so much its size, but that God's concerned about it. It's important to God. And the message that God is, that Jonah is to preach to this city is very brief, actually only five words in Hebrew in all. And it's clear, isn't it? Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The impact of that message is clear, isn't it? God is a God to whom they are responsible. Um, God is a God who has seen them. God has judged them and God will destroy them in 40 days. And I just want you to imagine for a moment that you are Jonah. And it's, it's, a, it's a little bit like Jonah was um, like a, a Polish Jew who was maybe a survivor of World War II. And God is asking him to go to preach a message of judgment to a city of repatriated German Nazi SS officers. Not much fun. And it's, a, and it's a stern warning, isn't it? And we, But we see this incredible um, response from them, and it's equally clear. Look at verse 5. It only took one day, and we are told that the Ninevites believed God. In other words, they hear the message as a message that's come to them from God, and it's a true message. But look at verse 8. Furthermore, we're told that the king issues a decree that all of them are to call urgently on God. So having heard God's word and having believed it, they are to call urgently on God. But calling out's not the only action that they do. This is a corporate act of repentance which is thoroughgoing. Do you see verse 5 tells us that all of them, from the greatest to the least, begin a fast and they mourn. And verse 6 tells us that even the king himself humbles himself before God. He removes his royal robe. He puts on um, clothes of sackcloth, which is a bit like wearing um, hairy, kind of coarse uh, undergarments like wearing horsehair underpants um, 
and he sits down in ashes and he grieves at his sinfulness. And have a look at verse 8. Not only are they to turn to God, they are also to turn from sin. They are to turn from their evil ways. They are to turn from their violence. It's clear that the Ninevites have genuinely heard and believed in God, isn't it? They have understood that they're accountable to God. They have understood that God is holy and just and that they stand before him. They know that they have transgressed each one of them, no exceptions, and they know that they face his fearful judgment. But more than that, they know that their only help can come from him. It's real belief, it's real sorrow, it's real fear, it's real change. But before we move on in the story to see what happens next, let's pause and think about us for a moment. You see, I think you and I often forget what the Ninevites grasped so clearly. That God is the God who made the world. Remember back in chapter 1, Jonah says in verse 9, God is the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, who made the sea and the dry land and that he made us, and God is the God who made you. We are his creation. But more than that, he's a holy and righteous God, a pure God who sees our sin. He sees that we are not pure and right, and we are responsible to God for that. From the least to the greatest, we sit under God's judgment and that judgment is something to be feared. So in reading this passage today we have to examine ourselves and to realise our situation before that holy God and um, if we are Christians and most of us here today are, we say that we know this God, we say we know the holy and just God who has loved us in Jesus Christ but let's be honest Many of us have long ago ceased to view God as someone to fear. We take him for granted as our friends, our friend. We tame God and God is no longer pure and holy and our lives betray that knowledge. We sit lightly to our own sin. We're self-assured and proud and sometimes arrogant, we're sometimes greedy and fly in the face of God's clear words. We're jealous with what other people have. We lie, we cheat, we're short-tempered. We cling on to our own idols of money or success or career or relationships or any other form of modern gods. So we claim to be Christian and yet we disregard God and his word and his nature. And if that is you today, and if that is me today, then the warning here for us is there is a God, and that God is holy, there is a heaven and a hell, and his word for us is to turn to him, to turn away from our sin. But there's also a word here for us, for some of us here are in the situation of the Ninevites. 
And as much as it's unpalatable to to say and to hear, the Bible is clear, isn't it, about our situation, that God is our maker, that we have lived in rebellion against him, and whether it's 40 more days or 40 more years, we will one day have to stand before him and give an account. But that's a warning that God gives us here because he's concerned about the Ninevites. It's a warning because he does want them to turn. And that's what we're going to have a look at next. Do you see the nature of the repentance, whether we are Christians or whether we are not here today? Look at what the Ninevites teach us about repentance. They hear the word of God, that is, they see that it is God that they're truly dealing with. They see themselves as guilty and under his judgment. And having seen that, they reflect that in their actions. They fear God, they're grieved by their sin, and they turn away from it with a vengeance. Reaching into every part of their life, ensuring that it doesn't happen again, changing attitudes and habits and actions. That's the nature of true repentance. But having um, said that, let's uh, turn back to what happens next because imagine the situation in Nineveh. Here they are going about uh, life as if they were self-contained and marrying and uh, having children and bringing up their children and uh, going to work and daily life and going off to war and killing some people just, um, you know, just generally a day in the ancient world. And all of a sudden this man comes from this place, this little place that no one kind of really knows much about, and he starts roaming around and telling them that there's a God to whom they're responsible. And they believe and they're, they're heart-stricken and they think we are totally stuffed. We have had it. What hope for us is there? And the king takes leadership and he clutches at a straw and in hope against hope, he utters the words of verse 9. Who knows? It's a desperate cry, isn't it? Who knows if a God who is holy and just can accept sinners and rebels? Who knows if this God can forgive sins? Who knows if this God will actually ever hear us? Who knows if this destruction can be turned back? Who knows? And this is the cry of our world, isn't it? Deep down. Who knows if there is a God who hears? Who knows if there is a God who cares? Who knows? if there is a way to be right with God, who knows? It's a cry of desperate hope, a stab in the dark, a cry in the void. But you know what? There is someone who knows. The book of Jonah tells us that Jonah knew, didn't he? After all, he had been a rebel from God. He had run from God. He was about to lose his life, but God reached out to him and saved him. And in an act of great kindness and mercy, he gave him a second chance. 
Do you see that little word in verse 1? Second. God came to him a second time. He didn't leave Jonah on the shelf. He allowed Jonah to live and to bear his word again. So Jonah knows the answer to this question. He knows it from his own experience and he also knows it from his theology because next week in chapter 4 verse 1 we are going to read Jonah saying this, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God. I knew that you are slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew that you are a God who relents from sending calamity. You hear his words? These are words he's echoing from way back in Exodus chapter 34. He knows his theology. He knows it from experience and he knows it from God's word. The king of Nineveh says, says, who knows? But he actually has someone in his very presence who has no doubts whatsoever about the nature of God and the answer of that question. If Jonah knows, then we who are Christians have an even greater confidence about answering that question, don't we? Because like Jonah, we know from our theology. Because the Bible tells us that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might not perish but have eternal life. And it says that God has put forward his one and only son as a, an offering to die for our sin. And he has said that he has done this even though we were totally dead and undeserving um, in our trespasses. And he has said that that one act of, of um, Jesus Christ will forgive us our sins and turn away his anger from our sinfulness. So we know it. We know the prodigal son of the father opening up his arms, waiting and hanging out for his rebellious son to come home. And when he does, he embraces him. We know that from our theology, but we also, as Christians, we know it from our experience. Because we know we were rebellious. We know that God has convicted us of our own sinfulness. We know that we have cried out to him, please help me, have mercy on me. And we know that he has done that in Jesus Christ. And we know that even though we keep stuffing up, he keeps forgiving us. And we know that he has raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places and he's poured out his riches and his mercy into our lives and he's poured out his Holy Spirit, his ever-present help in trouble. And so as Christians, we do not cry out in the darkness when we are faced with our own sinfulness. We don't cry out and say, who knows? Oh, maybe God will forgive me. For we know. Now, for those who are not Christians, let me 
urge you here today to stop wondering. Stop wondering because it's a terrible thing to not know. I've spent a fair bit of time over the last eight or nine months in um, Peter Mac chemotherapy ward and there's a lot of people there who are very sick and they're wondering and some of them are dying and I look at them I go I wonder what they're thinking about God and they're wondering and they're not sure and a friend of mine um, emailed me and he said uh, I had a wonderful visit to a patient in hospital uh, a friend of his who was not a Christian, asked him to go and visit uh, another patient who was not a Christian. And uh, this patient said to him, what's the truth about dying? Have you ever been asked that question? It's astounding, isn't it? And he said, there is a God, your maker, and you're going to meet him. But he went on from there to the gospel to tell her that God delights to have mercy and that if she trusted in God, in Jesus as her saviour, then she would be accepted as his child. And within the hour, she did. And two weeks later, he preached at her funeral. The king of Nineveh, may have thought that he was clutching at straws. But Jonah knew that he was not clutching at straws and we know that he wasn't either. If you call out to Jesus, you won't either. For friendship and God and forgiveness is possible in Jesus. Let me finish. Having said all, all that, I'd like to return to how the Ninevites responded. To see that they repented, that they heard God's word, they believed it, they turned to God and they turned from evil. And that's what repentance is all about. It's undergoing a change in orientation and of action. Think about the baptism vows that you made at your baptism or the one that we said today. Maybe you'd like to turn to them. They're quite startling and they're all about this. You see that you say, I turn to Christ. You say, I repent of my sins and you say, I renounce Satan and all that is evil and unjust. You turn away from those things. So if you have been baptised, let me urge you, this is not just how we come to the Christian life in the beginning, it's actually how we live our Christian life daily. In all the challenges of the big turnings and all the challenges of the small turnings. Turning to Jesus, confident that God will abundantly pardon us because of what Jesus has done, resolving to change and putting those changes into effect and never, ever wondering in desperation who knows because in God we have an extravagant God who will welcome us 
who sincerely turns to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, the astounding um, response that the Ninevites had to this message and so much that we can learn from it today. Please help us to remember your compassion, your mercy and your grace towards us today. Amen.